Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara Anstan Raven, Professor of Holocaust Studies. I'm excited to introduce our special speaker for today's episode. Dr. Björn Krondoffer is director of the Martin Springer Institute at Northern Arizona University and endowed professor of religious studies in the Department of Comparative Cultural Studies. His field of expertise is religion, gender and culture in post-Holocaust and reconciliation studies. He has presented and facilitated intercultural seminars in many countries, including South Africa, Australia, Finland, Armenia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and many others. He is a widely published author, with his two latest publications coming out this year, including Unsettling Empathy, Working with Groups in Conflict, and The Holocaust and Masculinities, Critical Inquiries into the Presence and Absence of Men, by Sunni Press. He serves on several editorial and advisory boards. And it is our honor to have him with us here today. Hi, Dr. Krondoffer. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. We're interested in learning about the Martin Springer Institute. Would you tell us how did it begin and what is its mission? I would be happy to answer this. Um, the Martin Springer Institute uh, was founded in uh, really about 20 years ago by a survivor, Holocaust survivor from Benjin, Poland. She survived there and miraculously her whole family survived. Wow. Um, she came to America. Um, she, her first husband died of cancer. Her second husband is Ralph Martin. Her maiden name is Springer. And so they combined the Martin Springer as their two last names and decided to give a small endowment to Northern Arizona University to start a program that teaches about the Holocaust, looks at the legacy of the Holocaust, but also, and importantly, bring it to issues that are really of great concern today, where there's grave harm or injustice in different communities. So the wonderful part is we have a dual mandate to look at the traumas of the past specifically to the Holocaust, and then look at what's wrong in the world today. And there's a lot of things that go wrong today and address them as a public educational institute. So we are not a credit-bearing graduate studies program. We really reach out to students and to the community at large. That's, that's our mission. That's what we do. That's wonderful. And as I was reading through the Institute's 2019 Year in Review program, it is really impressive to see the caliber of events you put together in a single year. Like you said, it became very clear that there is such a commitment to address the current issues of the world vis-a-vis -vis the past. Would you touch on some of the outreach activities and educational programs that the Institute hosts and is involved with? Sure. So what we do now is we reach out to students from across the disciplines at Northern Arizona University, and we have about 20,000 students on campus, and uh, um, really work with them in special um, research programs that are faculty mentored. Uh, we call them faculty student teams. And mm -hmm. the students learn how to actually come up with a public project that has to test the pub of the, has to 
um, be good in the public eye. I mean, it, it mm -hmm. can be simply a research paper. And we have done several exhibits that are now traveling. We have done a little book project. Uh, for example, with a book project, we looked at uh, Jewish life in Flagstaff, a small town, as an example of Southwest towns. Jewish life uh, between 1930 and 1940s, and what the Jewish community, this very small Jewish community in town, knew about the Holocaust in Europe and whether they responded to this at the time. That's a kind of a mini, mini um, micro history, as we would say. We have a different exhibit um, about the Benjin ghetto, about young people in the Benjin ghetto, where our founder lived and survived. And that has been traveling now, not only across the United States, um, it's traveling right now in all three Holocaust centers in South Africa, Johannesburg, wow. Durban, and Cape Town. Um, and it, it opened in March, and it has been translated into Polish and is shown in Poland, near Benjin in Sosnowicz, which is the town next and next by. So that's one way of what we do. Another mm -hmm. is to do um, scholarly programs where we invite international scholars to on to talk on a particular theme for three, four days. We call them roundtable conversations. Um, not your regular academic program with 20 minute papers, but actually structured around conversations with 15 to 20 people for three or four days. The one we wanted to do this fall was called um, on the ethics of uh, the post-Gulag and post-Auschwitz legacies. Wow. Think about how different uh, countries and different societies have responded uh, since the end of the Gulag and since the end of Auschwitz and bring in scholars from Russia and Bulgaria and Israel and Germany to, to our campus. We had mm -hmm. to postpone it till next year. Um, we organize some study trips, we do teacher training and con on a continuous basis bring in speakers and film series to um, educate and make people aware on campus and in our community. You know, when your name turned up, I was reminded of the fact that a couple of years ago, I worked on a smaller Jewish community in Germany on Worms. And in that work, I realized that you, I think, in, in particular in the 80s, had uh, on and off taken Americans to, to Germany for these kind of encounters and trips of mutual understanding and, and the likes and then uh, you know, I, I was reminded that when you did that it was in a very different world than we are now and so I think it's kind of an interesting moment to compare that because for all intents and purposes you probably thought at the time that you had still quite a bit of work to do and things to overcome great right but you know since I, I also remember the time there was a certain sense of optimism about the mission. Whereas, you know, I wonder where are we now? Would you mind speaking about this in comparison? You know, where, how do sure. you think sure. where, we are, where we're now in comparison to where you might have been in the 80s in terms of hopes and aspirations and, and, and the kind of feasibility of, of these kind of ideas of reconciliation? Yeah, so in um, probably your listeners will have realized by now that, that I have an accent and that accent is a German accent. No, we say and, it's a Texan accent uh, around Texan. here. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and, and we may want to address this a little later on, like why someone who was born in Germany did his graduate studies in, in the United States and ends up to run a Holocaust Institute that was founded by a survivor from Poland. But in the 1980s, I started working with groups of 
non-Jewish German students and Jewish American students. And between 1989 and 2005, I think 11 or 12 times, we took them on different groups, obviously. We took them on four-week trips, two weeks in the United States and two weeks in Germany and, and Poland. And if, uh, to really for this younger generation, really the third generation, sometimes second still, but mostly third generation, we wanted them to learn from each other about how to handle these, uh, you know, traumatic pasts. A term we didn't use much back then, but today I would use it. Like, what is it that we can learn from each other by looking at this together and traveling to the to different places, to the Jewish community in America, which the German students really did not know, and then to go back to Europe and see where the Holocaust took place. And despite um, the fact that this was hard work to get people to talk and talk um, with certain amounts of accountability and, and honesty, there was this optimism that we can change, that by looking at the past, we can really change the present and change the future. And that was backed up by optimism in general, with the fall of the Soviet Union, dictatorships were not on vogue as much as they are today. I mean, there was just a, a basic sense, it will move forward and it, we have a chance to make it better. And um, today it's different. I think we live in a time of pessimism. Um, at the time, I kind of summarized my experiences and ideas about the 80s and early 90s in a book called Reconciliation and Remembrance, um, Encounters Between Young Jews and Germans. And it was infused with the sense of, yes, we can do something. That's right. That and now, with my new book that is just about to be published on unsettling empathy, working with groups in conflict, I start on this note saying, like, we live in different time and uh, working with groups in conflict becomes more and more urgent because uh, we are falling apart. The, the social contract falls apart. The social contract with everyone in, in the society is no longer guaranteed. And that is true for this country and that's true for many other countries. So yes, we, we do live in different times. Yeah, no, um, you know, in, in lots of ways when you kind of illustrated that way, your two books really do mark very different moments in time respectively as to where we are with you know the process of remembrance of the holocaust drawing lessons from it and and also moving you know forward some kind of agenda of reconciliation i was um just earlier cruising around on the internet googling you obviously and i came across this beautiful uh, youtube video about this um reconciliation project that you ran in 2013 with neighboring university kids, I think, on this five-day project. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? I was just really kind of stunned by it, uh, you know, in the way, you know, you also, you know, you talk, you lecture, but you also jump and dance and did everything and then some in between to make that happen. So I thought that was really, really impressive. Yeah, I, the kind of um, reconciliation work that I'm facilitating between groups that have been either in conflict in the past or in conflict in the present, reach from working with third generation Jews and Germans to Palestinian Israelis and Germans in trilateral programs that we mostly do in Israel or the West Bank, or racial reconciliation seminars for students. And, uh, Whatever we do um, in these programs, um, I try to um, get people out of their comfort zone in terms of what they believe to be true 
and also out of the comfort zone of just having a nice conversation in a circle, but to um, uh, use nonverbal and uh, movement improvisation techniques right. that help people to kind of explore a, a different understanding of where they are, what they truly hold valuable, uh, where they reach sensitive issues that they, they feel like are non-negotiable in the face of the person that they may have been in conflict with or are still in conflict with. And to work through these kind of resistances to a, a place of uh, slightly better communication and um, improved mutual understanding. You know, that's exactly what that video was about. I think you go through a process of initially, so to speak, opening the channel of communication. There's a little bit of group dynamic, but then the, there was a certain like moment of which I thought was really, really stunning where I think you had asked the group to create a collective statue. So the individual bodies had to kind of make up all of a sudden this collective whole. And I thought that's actually really, really brilliant um, in lots of ways. It compels them to kind of step outside of themselves and to be something together with others. And I thought that was a really, really powerful moment. We call them uh, living sculptures. That's what it was. Um, that's right. And uh, so people, the groups have to, we give them specific tasks and they have to go out the room for 20 minutes, come up with a sculpture that is only formed with their bodies and then show it as if they show a public monument in a, in a, or in a monument in a public space. And then yeah. you kind of take it apart and see like, what are they deliberately or unconsciously portraying, uh, giving their group, social group identity beyond their personal intentions. And obviously now that we're talking about monument removals and the controversy over kind of monuments, it, it touches on that issue. Like how do we present ourselves publicly and what is implied by doing so and what needs to change. So when we work with this living sculptures, we start with one sculpture, but eventually we work, we work with them to see like, what would it do if we change it or dismantle it or take it apart? And it has a wide range of applicability. Very much, but you know, it, it kind of reminds me in the, kind of going in two directions. We had just I think over a week ago, Adam um, Strom here, and we talked to him. And one of the issues that was brought up, so we, we have all these great ideas, but doing any of this now under the pandemic, the conditions of the pandemic, addressing our issues of, of race, of Holocaust, of remembrance, of perpetrators, dealing with these difficult topics, so to speak, while we have to observe social distancing, is is it like a new challenge of sorts? Um, and so we we talk a little bit about that. It's also really difficult now, just on a screen, you know, just to kind of okay reach over there and grab that student on the other end and say, well, I'm gonna, you know, take you now through a very uncomfortable moment, and you're gonna learn some things that you find very very challenging. And so I think that really is a really unfortunate kind of moment for us right now, in, in terms of how, if at all, under these circumstances, we can kind of deal with. But then the other, and I want to, I'm curious about it. Um, there's kind of an implicit assumption of sorts in your biography, or it kind of turns out that way, that you started with work of reconciliation and kind of confronting of the Holocaust and, you know, anchored in Germany or that kind of encounter. And now obviously you are engaging on this without any borders, any limits. But, you know, you're talking about Arizona, you're talking about the Palestinians. Um, so is there something we can learn from how Germans have faced their past? I mean, if 
you know, if, is, is that your trajectory that in lots of ways, certain things that you learned there um, have now allowed you to move forward and to allow you to do these things that you do right now? Or do you see them more disconnected and different? I, they, they're very much connected. I mean, in some way, this has been just my personal trajectory to start with, uh, where I had to come to terms with, with a difficult past, given my German non-Jewish background and, and understanding my family history and family heritage within a larger historical and political context and be able to communicate this um, accurately and sensitively with my Jewish conversation partners, because very early on coming to the United States, I reached out to the survivor community, to the second, third generation, and uh, and to learn in these encounters about myself, the other, and then create a third, something that moves us together forward. Um, so many of the dynamics I learned there, I felt we can apply to other conflict zones with the one difference if a conflict is still burning, if it's not resolved, it takes a slightly different approach than if a conflict is actually in the past. Mm. And by being in the past, I don't mean it doesn't have reverberations, it still has echoes and painful legacies, mm. but it's no longer ongoing. And um, so there's a difference there. But yeah, I mean, there are some of the dynamics between groups and conflict um, are similar as long as we keep the very concrete political, social, cultural contexts, um, if we are aware of the differences in the, in, in the, of the context. And the one hope is that, well, maybe we need to take a break with these kind of intensive interpersonal encounters right now, but maybe by spring of next year, we can go back to them. Right. No, of course. I mean, we, we all are equally hopeful there, but I think there's also, you know, just generally speaking, there's a certain kind of trust that you can develop more easily if you're with people in the same room. And so you can bring up issues that are painful or difficult. Um, you can talk, you know, from a historical perspective about the perpetrators or whatever. I find that sometimes a little bit more difficult just to do it all the same across, you know, now this virtual platform. Absolutely. I mean, we, we can share um, opinions and knowledge um, via Zoom or whatever medium we use, um, that is a virtual medium, but um, we, we cannot really challenge each, each other in a, in a way that we have created a, a, an environment where people can trust each other. Yeah. If I only see your face and I never have met you in person, I know very little about you and I know very little about my students or the people who would like to engage with me. And so it, it's a different kind of exchange. It, it has its good moments, but again, and as I said before, it's not quite the same. Now that we have all transitioned to doing everything basically virtually, how has the Institute adjusted in this time of social distancing, virtual learning, virtual teaching? It is tough. I think everyone knows that. Um, and partially because so much of our programs is, is um, learning through social and human contact, through social interaction one way or the other, and without that element, it is limiting of what you can do. So, you know, summers is not our busy time anyway. Students are not here. We, we wanted a, a group of uh, Israeli and Bedouin students from Israel to come in August, actually next in 10 days, that had to be canceled. So there are things that are happening. Um, right now, I'm just 
trying out what options we have. It will have to be a few programs on Zoom. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking of mini series um, that touch on a particular issue, but it's more substantial over three or four weeks. Um, that is more than your one time have one speaker talking. Uh, but honestly, we don't really know yet. I mean, we are experimenting. So one of the things, you know, that, you know, going back again to the to the 1980s and the debates, you know, they, they entirely released were, were very much centered around the question of, of the kind of uniqueness, respectively, of the Holocaust. Um, and in that respect, it was still very much enshrined in, in the kind of newly created Germany after the fall of the wall, if you think about the big controversies over the uh, memorials in Berlin and so on and so forth. But now, in, in strange ways, you in particular, it seems in your work, you're addressing a much more diverse audience in, in, the, in the way in which now you're dealing with antagonism, racism, trauma, and, and the likes, cannot draw out any longer the, these kind of hierarchies of sorts, but everything kind of is, is related to each other, or it establishes some kind of relatedness. Is that a different way now of thinking about the trauma from a distance, or is that our 21st century that rewrites us, or the reality of our kind of social environment in which we operate at universities? What do you think? Yeah, the, uh, you definitely uh, bring up a, a topic that has been discussed among Holocaust scholars and then genocide and Holocaust scholars, and then add the human rights community to this one. And uh, a lot of ink has been spilled on whether or not it's comparable or unique or singular or should we compare and in the end um, you know i struggled with that too for many years and and right now i'm at the point where i say it's it's not an either or it's not a zero-sum game it's it's a false dichotomy um we, we can speak about the singularity of the holocaust without taking anything away about singularity of other genocides and at the same time, look at some of the dynamics that seem to repeat themselves in their own fashion, their own culture, in their own national or geographic context. But some of the dynamics still play out in very similar ways. And it actually helps us to understand our current moment much better if you look at some of these patterns and, and whether they end up being the kind of industrial state-centered genocide that Nazi Germany pursued but whether it's a different form of genocidal killings on a lesser scale, on a different scale with different mechanisms in place, or maybe not even, maybe by non-state actors, these are the differences we need to point out, but some of the dynamics and the sufferings and how easy it is to sometimes perpetrate these crimes and, and the impunity that often follows for people who perpetrate them and then what to deal, how to deal with the long-lasting traumas of uh, not only the people who uh, suffered and survived it, but also then looking at the next generation. Those are the things where we can really learn from each other and to keep up artificial boundaries between them is not helpful in my, in my view. I think that also describes very much how respectively the role now of Holocaust education has also changed. And we could see this, you know, even if you look at existing Holocaust museums, uh, those that would have been founded in the 80s would have more likely been exclusively about the Holocaust. Whereas if you more recent, look at more recent creations, including our own here in Dallas, and, and that seems to be the, 
the you know the way in which by which now these comparisons kind of get more and more widely made accepted in particular in the realm of education maybe you know the on the on the level of academic scholarship maybe we're still tossing around the ideas of of the singularities and then comparisons and contrasting but on the on the level of education and outreach i think there the the differences have softened quite a bit yeah and i think the education centers that are at, um, at universities and higher education institutions definitely have kind of broadened their their agenda and mm -hmm. Many of them call themselves now Holocaust and genocide, or, or they have different combinations of human rights or justice and, and Holocaust. I mean, there are different combinations, but it's fairly clear that there is a broader mission that we that we have now to uh, educate both our communities, local regional communities, as well as our student body. Very much. That's also, you know, very much true on our campus, wouldn't you say, Dr. Valente? I think so, especially this past semester, we actually taught a class together with another professor, the three of us, on refugees, exile, and human rights. And it was really incredible to see, you know, our campus is one of the most diverse campuses that we have, uh, I believe, in Texas, uh, with more than 100 countries represented in our student body. And so we had students from, you know, from all kinds of backgrounds join that class. And I think it's actually, it, it created a really enriching space where, you know, we taught it. We talked about the Holocaust as well, but putting things in context, I think it really enriched that kind of teaching about it. It's but also, don't you think, noticeable that, you know, we, we ran early on, we had everyone introduce themselves, and there was a preponderance of students who themselves or their families or communities had been exactly. a part of mass violence or, or displacement or of some variation of that. So. The reason yeah. why they end up in these classes is because, you know, lots of ways, unfortunately, the the experience is not entirely foreign to, to quite a few of them. For our students, we cannot isolate one atrocity from the other. I just remember um, about two years ago when I taught my introduction to Holocaust class, and there was a small group of students who, who presented Jewish the issue of Jewish refugees, especially Jewish refugee children, and how the United States pretty much closed the borders even on children with very few exceptions and made a small really indicated only that this might be an issue now with Syrian refugee children today mm. and the hand goes up from one of my students in this case it was a, a female student and she says well the difference is that the Jewish children were innocent and the Syrian children are dangerous oh wow and <laughs> so so you, you know exactly that was my response to <laughs> where, where did you go from there <laughs> you know the students first responded and uh, so you you try to gently let the person know that at the time the reason why jewish children were not allowed to the country is because there was a widespread assumption that jews are dangerous or foreign exactly. to this yeah. culture yeah. and we make the same assumption now and people really believed it back then even though 60 years later, we think how ludicrous it was. And and I told the student, guaranteed, you know, in 20 years, we will see this was the wrong, morally wrong decision. But she really just couldn't see it at the moment. But that's why we can't keep these really completely separate. It's, it's impossible. Exactly. And now, as of a few months ago, I heard the exciting news that you were elected chair of the Consortium of Higher Education Centers for Holocaust, Genocide, and Human Rights Studies. 
Would you tell us about the consortium and what is your vision as the newly elected chair for the consortium? So the consortium is a very young organization. We don't even have, uh, we're not even yet incorporated, but we're working on it as we are speaking. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so um, it came out of an idea that was shared on the panel that center directors at higher education places, meaning colleges and universities, it started with Holocaust centers, um, that we need to actually create a professional network where we can share our current concerns, our current issues with um, either administration or our sponsors or how to do fundraising or content issues like where do we see ourselves going in the near future? How do we speak to students? How do we speak to our communities? And that quickly included um, uh, center directors of our that had different names like Holocaust and genocide studies or genocide and human rights and Holocaust studies. So it was very clear we can't isolate the Holocaust as such. And so now uh, we really include um, center directors from from places that are, have some kind of educational mandate. Sometimes it's credit bearing, sometimes it's really just public education, but they have to be located on a college or at a university, not in a town city community or a federal building. And um, so we are now kind of in existence for about a year. Um, and the idea is that we become not only support network for each other, assuming that perhaps with the public pressures that is put on public universities that maybe even our centers might be at some point questioned or in danger of losing their more protective status that we have enjoyed so far that could would be one reason but also to make sure that we have a future in terms of uh, funding public funding private funding and that we have a public voice that eventually can enter into the um, debate uh, either in for particular audiences, but also just the public, where we as center directors can speak to how we see the current developments culturally, politically, socially, in relationship to what we know best, meaning the study of mass atrocities, whether it's the Holocaust, genocides, or other types of atrocities that we um, have dedicated our lives to. That's what that consortium is about, and I'm co-chairing it with my good colleague and friend, uh, Bess Grich-Polele from the Pacific Lutheran University in Washington State. So how many centers, institutes do you currently have in this consortium? Well, when we had our last summit in November 2019, um, the university that arranged that summit, they um, counted about 120 center, centers. That is really summit. incredible. So we, we, we could be a considerable force, given how many we are, and, uh, and, but we have never really paid attention to the fact that we could actually create a network and become a force. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you do now, again, coming back to our, our current situation, the pandemic, do you plan or envisioning any kind of gathering of these various centers online to, to kind of share some concerns or ideas at this particular moment or is everything more or less on hold or how does that work so we're using the summer to really get ourselves organizationally put together mm -hmm. so that we can actually do something by starting this fall um, we just postponed our um, summit we every two years we plan a summit for everyone to come together that won't happen to um, spring 2022 
So definitely we need something in between mm -hmm. two or three um, um, conferences, Zoom conferences for the center directors, but eventually you want center directors to actually collaborate on Zoom conferences that they can do together in a certain region with certain similar time zones that mm -hmm. they invite maybe a big name scholar or a panel, and then they share that platform, and not just with your university, but maybe with four or five or six universities yeah. that um, we actually become a network that creates programs together. Yeah. That would be also really exciting for speakers to think about. Totally. Yeah. Imagine you're a speaker and you're simultaneously, you know, now connected to these 120 centers. I mean, that's really, really powerful. That's it would be powerful. Exciting. Yeah. And wow. eventually, once we can travel again, that we invite uh, maybe a speaker, promise that person at two or three or four places and share some of the cost. Um, mm -hmm. cost Cost saving is always an issue for, as you know, for, oh, for yeah. centers. Yeah, no, of course, of course. I mean, and and you know, organizing big gatherings is also not just always a question of finances, but also quote unquote of you know, of, is a lot of work, and so you have to have that staff to do it. I mean, we have now larger annual conference that we always host in, in March, the annual scholars conference on the Holocaust. And the churches and we just did the 50th anniversary which was just before everything changed it goes back to franklin littell and yes no, it does yeah. very much pioneer i mean that's like if you think about okay we talked earlier about what you did in the 80s but that generation um that you know started to push really in the 70s th those were the true pioneers in many ways i mean not to take anything away from the larger developments of the 80s of which you were a part but in the 70s there were like lonesome lonesome doves out there you know there was oh, yeah. a lot of them you know what i mean that's true yeah franklin littell was at the religious studies department at temple university when i got my phd degree there oh, then, yeah, Actually, I, I know him i met yeah. him in person yeah and then you know so yeah, his wife still comes always to our conferences marcy uh, we are constant contact with her, and then we are now officially the new home of, of this conference and have been now for a little over three years. So, yes, that's true. That's how it all connects. That's right. Very exciting. So that's a cool consortium. What do you think, Dr. Valente? I think it's exactly what the world needs right now, right? When we're thinking about the rapid social changes that are occurring, I think it sounds like a, a really potential force for good and a, a really strong voice that we really need to have out there so that's that's really fantastic i'm really excited to hear more about it one one thing we learn right now in rather painful ways at least in first world industrialized countries that uh, just were used to certain forms of liberal democracy and public discourse that we can no longer take anything for granted yes and that's why networking and support systems are so necessary, because we can clearly see that 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 everything is on shifting grounds and we yes. don't know where it goes in a really great direction or in a troublesome direction. That's why I think such a consortium or any other kind of collaboration becomes more and more necessary. Exactly. No, I think that's sorry to just jump in there, but I think if we see that now within the context of what otherwise seems to be an um in the future of higher education in general yeah. then we you know if, if we assume that a good many of universities smaller ones will not necessarily make it through the next couple of years then that undoubtedly will also affect a good many of these centers and institutes absolutely um, 
So we're in, unfortunately, for for really a lot in lots of ways for higher education in general for a lot more uncertainty and um, that we presumably would have had in the you know over the last 30, 40 years. And so you know, at the beginning of our conversation, you you mentioned how unfortunately now it's much more of a pessimistic time that we live in. But I wanted to ask you know this last question, which is you know what is your hope for the future of Holocaust and human rights education in the United States and in the world in general? I think three years ago I would have answered this very differently than I'm I would right now, and right now I feel we are entrenching ourselves just to hold on to what we have, and not to lose even more. Um, there's always a threat we might lose more, and and then hopefully in one two years we, we get that to a point where we can actually really imagine uh, what it should be. I I do think that people in those centers that we are representing. Uh, all these education centers will have to find a public voice that gives people a good understanding of both historically and politically how these how these mechanisms work and how they get into place so that we can pay attention to what is happening today while at the same time giving people some moral guidance and I don't necessarily mean you know individual moral guidance but some moral guidance of of what is really valuable for us to hold on to the important things of human communities and not let the values be determined by, by other voices that kind of crowd our digital space and our social media and everything else that, that we can say, listen, there, there are mechanisms um, that are in place and there could be morals that help us, guide us to uh, find a, a way to counter those negative mechanisms. Um, and I think that would be something important for right now and probably for the near foreseeable future. I think beyond that will go down as the very measured um, articulation of hope in the age of pessimism. Um, so. <laughs> 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 but, you know, it is describing, you know, unfortunately our time. And I think the first thing, you know, that we probably have to do is really to take that seriously and not just, you know, I think there's a, you know, Whenever I I you know talk right now to people, uh, invariably all every other person always slips into this when we will be back, and that means you know all kinds of things. But it's this assumption that somehow we can transport ourselves back into that time and whichever time that was. And I think we have to recognize that you know time travel has always been a bit of a challenge, but in particular in this case we're not going to be able to do that, and we have to recognize that our own times right now require more of our attention and less of our assumptions about certain, you know, that we have anything for certain. So I think therefore I appreciate the kind of, um, how did I call it now, measured message of hope in the age of pessimism. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much Thank for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciated it. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about our guest by visiting the Martin Springer Institute's website at in.nau.edu forward slash Martin hyphen Springer. You can find us on our website at utdallas.edu forward slash Ackerman Center. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast and on Facebook.com forward slash Ackerman Center. Stay safe and take care. Until next time. 
Today's episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Sarah Valente.